Welcome listeners to the 16th episode of Stockholm Legacy Report, a podcast about paper legacy. My name is Victor Bernhardt, with me today is powerful wizard Christopher Wikström. Unfortunately, our powerful co-host Robin Svensson is out of office today, so it's going to be the two of us. And most of all, of course, welcome to you, dear listeners. Hello everybody, I hope you're doing well this late evening. It's Monday, 10pm, and we're ready to swoon through this very nice uh, time with y'all. Stockholm Legacy Report can be found every week on the Top Tech app. In today's episode, or shall I say tonight's episode, we will go over the paper legacy we played in the past week, and then we will deliberate what we as a potential team legacy Stockholm Legacy Report podcast unit would bring to the table, pun intended. Also, we will, in perhaps our most popular segment, look at the basic lands you should play in Murfolk. But first things first, Christopher, how was your legacy paper week? I had a very fun paper week. I decided to uh, sleeve up a deck that I saw on Twitter that I've I'm a huge fan of, and I guess somewhat uh, shout out to the Canadian Threshold podcast because uh, I sleeved up uh, Canadian Threshold, and uh, you know, not Rug Delver. I didn't sleeve up Rug Delver. I mean, fuck that shit. I sleeved up Canadian Thresholds, four Stifle, four Mongoose, but I cut the Delvers. You know, the list that I saw was just so tuned to have a really strong. And efficient graveyard deck. So it played four Dragon Rage Chandler, four Mongoose, uh, four, not three Tarmogoyf, and one Brazen Borrower. And then just some really sweet enablers, you know, Seal of Fire to make the Goyf uh, and Chandler big faster, Mishra's Bobbles, uh, like two of them, just all of the really cheap and efficient cards. And yeah. People were not ready for Stifle, and one of the games that I played was literally one spell got cast in the early turn, which was a Stifle. The opponent did not find a second land, <laughs> just played a threat, and it killed them. Wow. That's um, that's impressive. So, I mean, how is Tarmogoyf these days? I'm thinking if people play cards like, you know, Prismatic Ending, for example, is, is this card playable? Well, it's uh, it's hard to tell. I mean, the uh, the opponents that I played against, all opponents but Robin played prismatic endings, and what I found out is that in a meta where people are packing prismatic endings and sorts of plowshares as the premier ways to kill your creatures, nimble mongoose carries a lot of weight, and uh, I just like one of my games that I played against Infect with the White Splash. Uh, he has the White Splash for Prismatic Ending and sorts of plowshares and uh, maybe some other utility cards in the sideboard. That's just some good stuff for Infect to have. When the game was over, he just revealed his hand, and I think it was two or three Prismatic Endings in there, and I just killed him with three Mongoose. Uh, it was like just really good. I mean, Mongoose is extremely... I, I think if people aren't ready for it, you know, people aren't really playing black, so they're not really playing Strix. Uh, Quattle has fallen out of favor. You know, people like 
playing Endurances and Uros, which <laughs> both of those kill this deck kind of hard. Uh, but you have to fight it uh, on the stack and not in play. I was just going to ask you, isn't uh, Endurance specifically a huge problem? I mean, it's a 3-4 to begin with, but also obviously gets you out of threshold. Yeah, it's it's pretty massive, uh, not going to lie. I, I played against one deck that had Endurance, I think. And I did not run into it. But I also think that this deck is really smooth. And it might be harder than they expect to resolve an Endurance if that's the card you care about in the matchup. If you have a Mongoose in play, cards like Jason Mind Sculptor might not really be an issue. So it's, it's, it was very interesting. The list was extremely well-tuned. And uh, I went 3-0, and uh, the first the first match was against an Esper control deck. And uh, yeah, he said uh, that it was a kind of shaky Esper control brew, and he wasn't sure about the mana. And uh, he seconded that after playing against Canadian that stifled and wastelanded him out of two games very quick. But it, it looked like a really sweet brew, and I think like if he would have played more basics, uh, he you know had mentor unearth you know cards that canadian does not want to see but then the infect player it's always a fun matchup but it can also be quite it, it can also have problem against very land disruptive hands and uh, yeah like i mentioned game one i played one stifle on his first fetch and he didn't find land too so that was that was sweet it sounds uh, exactly like you want a canadian threshold game to unfold some super interactive magic you know like what can go wrong you know you're your opponent uh, and it's a, like my friend he was also back from spain you know he had been there for a long time we're really close friends we're writing to each other hyping each other up for you know the evening's games and then game one i just played one stifle and he killed him it was a welcome back homie. but yeah the most the hardest match of the evening was against robin on lance and if you're a Canadian, if you've ever played Canadian, you know that this is not what you want to play against. Game one, I managed to get a Sue hand. You know, early hits in, managed to get there with some reach. Game two, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think he just marred me, uh, maybe turn five or six, but it, it's just a struggle, you know. Every wasteland from his side hurts really bad. Uh, you know, especially with Ursa Saga and maybe the threat of Field of the Dead, it gets increasingly difficult to get through. And game three was just like the nastiest game ever. I resolved a Winter Orb and was doing some beatdowns and he crop rotated. Uh, he could have gotten a Mesa Biff to stabilize a bit, but I think he got a Wasteland or a Port or something. And then one turn before lethal, he finds a Shoke. And all of my islands are tapped <laughs> because uh, I have tried to play spells and he has a tabernacle in play. So he kills my Goyf and I draw cards for five turns before finally finding a fetch for the bolt that I had, uh, which was lethal. But I was just sitting there like, I'm dead. He just plague winded me with a choke and I had no counter spells. And I just sat there, like, looked in my graveyard, like, yeah, I have one Volk left in the deck. 
I need to get a fetch real quick. But yeah, so I, I managed to squeeze that one. But I, I mentally, I had surrendered the game. Because I was like, yeah, he's going to kill me before I can do anything of value. So very good games, Robin. Never surrender, not even in the face of Armageddon. So Victor, did you get to play any magic? Sadly, I did not. The practicalities of adult life occurred. I am, however, hoping for new opportunities this week. Uh, if I'm lucky, the last cards for my first attempts at Mono Green Cloud Post will arrive. So those super sweet Bob Ross basics will get a chance to shine. Looking forward to that. Other than that, I've just been... Uh, I spent... Uh, Sunday evening watching Marcus Ewell stream his way to the finals of a legacy challenge with the high tide with predict and it was a glorious glorious time almost as good as playing myself in paper was watching him just destroying all of these blue red tempo monkey blue red tempo monkey blue red tempo and he's just nah, brain freeze you for you know loads yeah, I, I I was tuning in and out of that since his stream came up. I was just in and out of the stream whenever I had an opportunity, you know, uh, oh, I have a small break. And it was just such a blast. It's it's always, you know, such a treat when you get to see Marcus uh, play uh, High Tide. And some of the lines are just so, you know... Um, you feel young again when you see some of the some of the turnabout lines, and it's just uh, very invigorating. I would uh, recommend if there's a vod on his uh, Twitch, I would recommend everybody everybody to go and watch those games. And uh, yeah, and also like he, he was a, a guest earlier uh, on the pod. Give him a follow on Twitter. He's uh, yeah, he, he usually tweets when he's playing or just uh, like the, today, some really strong predict memes. Um, so yeah, predict enough times and they can't hide from the tide. It looks as if the Swedish Legacy Championships will take place in Borås on 6th November of this year. When we approach the championships, you can of course expect us on this podcast to go over our preparations in some detail. However, today, me and Christopher will discuss something slightly uh, or very related, which uh, if this tentative schedule holds on 5th of November... On the eve of the championships, there will be a team legacy event uh, at the same place. So for the purpose of this discussion, because uh, we don't know yet, we will treat this as if it is to be a team legacy unified event. Because we thought that would be interesting since there's three of us. And if we were to enter a unified event in legacy, what would that look like? For you who don't know, a team unified event is basically three players sleeving up decks that do not share cards between them, save basic lands. So, Christopher, if we were to form up such a team for 5th November, what would we most likely play? Oh, man. Yeah, so this is this is so, like, um, one of my favorite things to do in 
in Magic is uh, tournament prep. And we will have a, an, a, an entire episode. It might be our... Yeah, this is the commercial for that. It might be probably the longest episode up to date when we finally do it. Uh, our thought process between tournament prep and all of that. You know, I, I just... Uh, keep thinking about that 15th uh, sideboard slot and uh, you know i get tingles all over but when it comes to the f- the three of us if we would go to you know the legacy champs and play a unified if i understand everything correctly when it comes to unified tournaments of these kinds everyone's playing the f- same format and only one person per team can play a certain card what this means is that there are some real benefits of us all of us having very different playstyles, but also some pretty hard constraints. Like we will have one brainstorm and ponder player, and usually that person in our team, I would I would probably pick Robin for that. But he also usually pairs that with Swords to Plowshares, which kind of locks out you on Death and Taxes. And if you're not on Death and Taxes then you would probably be on yeah we could say you know some some vec- like uh, some nick fit or uh, arena uh, like rector fit deck uh, but if you're not on that then my first guess would be reanimator yeah because if i was to be on the an rector plan that again is invalidated by the fact that if robin wants to play a blue deck with sorts of plushers i can't play rector uh, because I also play Swords to Plowshares in that deck. Uh, and that deck will become quite subpar uh, if you were to remove the primal removal from the deck, so to speak. I mean, um, everyone is, is constrained by the fact, as you said, that there's only going to be one cantrip deck uh, amongst the three of you. And, and I also think, importantly, it really constrains your mana base because only one person can play Mr. Rainforest. Uh, only one person can play Polluted Delta, only one person can play Windswept Heath, etc. The fetchers are also included in this restriction, and that, I think, is a huge problem, as is the potential to splash colors, because, of course, the duels are also constrained in that manner. So I think, at the same time, sort of what, what I think I would go for, uh, sort of in a vacuum, uh, n- not sort of knowing if I was teaming up with you guys, I would go for for Reanimator for two reasons. One is that the mana base doesn't necessarily stop the other two players. You can basically play a suite of black fetches and that sort of should open up the other players to pretty much whatever they want to do except sort of splashing black and maverick or Grixis control but these are decks that probably are less favored currently so in, in practice it's not a huge problem. And also, and I think this is uh, more importantly, only one deck amongst the three opponents you would face would be able to sleeve up the best reanimator sideboard cards. Endurance. And only one of those opposing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, endurance is one of those cards. But only, uh, also importantly, one only one player would be able to play counter magic, which I, as a black red reanimator player, currently feels is. The larger problem is that there is just so many force of wills, force of negation, days floating around that resolving spells, unless you have the god start of, you know, Chancellor of the Annex, Swamp Dark Ritual, Unmask, unless you have that 
level of protection and get to do that on turn one, basically. The risk of you having your often sort of it's not an all-in plan, but you're pretty dependent on getting that reanimated reanimation spell off. And if that's countered, you still have your targets in your graveyard probably, but it's gonna take you some time to rebuild. Usually the blue player more quickly rebuilds their counter magic because they have cantrips and you do not. And you have to hit with specific faithless lootings and so on and so forth. And that's rather difficult to do. And since there's only gonna be one of the three decks that you face are going to have this chance, it might be worthwhile the gamble because Black Red Reanimator has the potential to really just run over decks that do not have access to these cards. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. And I think like, uh, l- like you mentioned, the Reanimator ability to, if you're not playing a like a counterspell heavy deck then being on a deck that has a lot of uh, specific answers like the tax on that over a free uh, person team is quite hard I, i've heard from sources online that death and taxes is right now quite well uh, paired against uh, reanimator also but if you match up against that style of deck I mean, it's uh, you have to play that that specific opponent, and they have the swords to plowshares, and uh, but also the wastelands. You know, Death and Taxes is kind of a an expensive deck to build in one of these uh, unified like lists because you're playing the swords to plowshares and the wastelands. So uh, you either, if you want to play a like Delver deck. With that, you kind of have to go with the Steam Vents builds, uh, the the latest blue-red builds, and you can't really play Bant uh, unless you go a bit Yankee and lean into four prismatic endings and then just be a bit you know, less uh, removal-heavy, which I think is not where Bant want to be. Especially if you expect to face Black Red Reanimator, where your prismatic ending really doesn't do that much. <laughs> oh man, I need to get an eighth color <laughs> for a grizzle round. But yeah, I think I think uh, that would be a really good uh, good deck for I think for you in this in this tournament. And I think that if if I would put two combination of uh, decks together that the three of us would play in this tournament i would probably put robin on band control you on reanimator and me on mono red painter because i mean the the lance of painter is completely untouched i get the tombs the cities and uh, yeah like uh, the red elemental blasts like all of those i get to leverage that really well and that's also one of the decks that can be quite hard to battle it's it's one of those quite linear decks that does a thing really well and can be really hard to build a good sideboard for, especially in a unified event. So that that was my combo one. My combo two would have been that I would give you the the crash course in green red madness. And here's the kicker: I would I would. Put the Tigas in Robin's lands deck that I think that we should put him on, and you would play Stomping Grounds instead. 
in the madness deck. And then just both of you having really linear, like uh, trying to kill one certain deck really bad. And then me in the middle sitting there on my learn deck trying to play like the slowest games ever. So those, those are my combos. But if you were to play Aluren, couldn't Robin also play Lance? Yeah, he can. Because if you play Aluren and Robin plays Lance, I can play Black Red Reanimator still. Yeah, I guess. I guess you could. The thing I was thinking about was just, you know, the the good meme of the Eightwala. But I think like Eightwala and Black Red Reanimator might be, be closer friends than, than we're ready to admit. <laughs> might, might. But, yeah, but yeah that might work then again of course now that I have cloud post going on that's also just a forest deck that really I mean crop rotation obviously you play those uh, endurance etc it steals some of the cards but I mean regardless I think I think the, the metagaming or, or theory crafting your setup on this format is a really interesting exercise on how to tackle metagames because in a paper setting, it, of course, you always have to account for people's card availability. Uh, what, which decks do people own? It's a factor in, in, in trying to figure out in the local event or semi-local event what people will play. Of course, in the Swedish National Championships, I guess people will be more prone to sort of really borrow cards and, and make sure to get their hands on stuff that they need to play the best deck they want to play because some players will go there to try to win this tournament, whereas, of course, we will go there to, you know, Enjoy that tournament. <laughs> Trying to meme on people, put that ball of citadel in the painter deck. Exactly. So when you look at the team legacy event, that becomes even more interesting because one, of course, push factor for people to play, for example, DNT, is of course that the deck is a deck that people own because it's a deck that has, you know, no reserve list cards. It's popular anyway, and you can perhaps tweak it to to get uh, get around some of the shared cards and then just not play another Swords to Plowshares deck. So I think you could expect to find a couple of Death and Taxes decks just from card availability, perhaps. On the other hand, as you said, the deck plays Swords to Plowshares and plays Wastelands. There are better decks in many people's minds that plays those two cards, which of course invalidates Death and Taxes. And all this becomes such an interesting exercise in how you want to navigate your sideboarding. Because I think your sideboard would look extraordinarily different as opposed to playing the same deck or the same archetype in the actual national championships the day after. Yeah. Uh, because you have to really metagame your sideboard. Like, do I want to put Massacre or not? Like, it's a complete blowout against a deck that's now popular in sort of single-player legacy. And in that matchup, it's it's fantastic. But if none of your opponents are going to play it in taxes, the card is really just going to sit there and do nothing. Same for Black Reanimator. The, the sideboard that you bring in that deck, you can, of course, really tweak to sort of what kind of graveyard hate do I expect to face. But in a, in a, in a situation like this... You have to sort of see, so which cards will, which cyborg cards, which hate cards will they play? And that will depend on which colors do they play. If, if people need, are going to play Rest in Peace, say, they need to play white. If people are going to play, you know, Shadows of the Void, they need to dedicate four cyborg slots to that card. Which decks will do that, etc. And I think that will be, <clears throat> like, it becomes so much the puzzle. deeper. Than you think, uh, than you think initially. Yeah, I actually, uh, I think that's interesting, and that uh, 
when trying to map out, you know, what what decks can we play with the least overlap, it's also interesting to see what generic sideboard cards are most easy to substitute into other decks. And I think uh, that we were talking about, you know, what would be the best combination for us players but that i'm basing that also a bit you know like on what we are comfortable playing but when it comes to my uh, like if i would rate the highest combination of uh, you know decks playability and uh, you know the the three decks that i think would synergize best together in a tournament like this it would probably be uh, doomsday death and taxes and elves as one team because the overlap is extremely small there. Or Doomsday, because I think Doomsday might be the actual pick for the Brainstorm Ponder deck. You know, playing playing Doomsday and, uh, you know, the green-white Depths deck with a Painter. Or, uh, like I mentioned, Doomsday with Death and Taxes and Elves. You know, all of them, they, they rarely have any overlap of the sideboards. And I just think that that would probably be one of the highest power level combinations. So yeah, it, 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 no matter if we can go or if we'll play or whatever, it's going to be super interesting to see what, what the people play and uh, like what combinations they're going to put on the world to see. It should also be a flavor prize. I mean, say for example, you bring Murfolk, Goblins, Death and Taxes. <laughs> Fist fight for caverns and ports. And wastelands like the biggest fist no, fight no, no, ever. No, 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 no problem at all. It's a tribal, tribal uh, flavor win. Come on. Everyone just played their basics. That's the extra, you know, mega flavor win. <laughs> like no, like yeah. Who needs a cradle? Who needs cavern of souls? Here's like I'm just gonna play six mountains and the muxes. <laughs> and like that cigarette, whatever, whatever. All right, <laughs> it's beautiful. It's gonna be great. Well. I hope we can make it for the uh, unified event uh, and we will of course really try to make it for the actual uh, championships. Um, it will be the event of the year, I expect. And that's saying something because there are other events on the horizon as well. So one tournament coming up pretty soon is the Norlands Championships in Legacy also has the same tournaments for pre-modern and the national championships for modern this will be in Örnsköldsvik on 1st to 3rd of October so pretty soon you're gonna have that we are unfortunately not going to be able to make it probably due to life happening uh, sadly I really wanted to play this tournament I just couldn't make it work but apparently they are really uh, making sure that this event can be played even though covid is happening and so on and so forth they have a really interesting setup so i strongly recommend anyone in the area to look at your schedule and see if you can make it there because i think it's going to be a baller of an event yeah i definitely like check check that out if you live in sweden i mean it's going to be great uh, i'm getting dunked by school but uh, if if not i definitely would have gone so check that out Christopher, it's time for the Basic Land Connoisseur panel. This week, 
we will talk about the islands of Merfolk, a deck that both you and I have played in history, but I don't think any of us currently have any box with it. Um, which mer people, or where should your mer people go swim uh, to be most deadly efficient? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question because the answer that I'm gonna give is not the one that I played. I used to play um, Alpha Islands, but we've done this panel long enough. I know what goes well with fish. It's white wine. What I'm what I'm trying to get at is the the land that I picked for today has more to do with a certain time of magic where I fought. The depiction and art of Merfolk was just insane. It's for sure my favorite depictions of Merfolk. And it was during Lorwyn and uh, Shadowmoor, like those two blocks. This is a, a like fun bonus section, like a very short one, that my absolute favorite Merfolk card. Can you guess it, Victor? Merfolk Assassin. No. It's my favorite Merfolk card. It's a, it's a very good it's a very good pick. It's from Lorwyn. Marrow Ridgery? Hell yeah! I mean, when I when I played uh, uh, this deck in Legacy, uh, Ridgery was a key player in the deck, and sometimes it just gave you some really sick, you know, quote unquote combo turns for people who might not have played with Ridgery or during the era where it was <laughs> a reasonable thing to do, which I think now, you know, cards like True Name Nemesis and, uh, you know, you name it, there are a million better Merfolk than it now. It's kind of fallen out of favor, but what it does is whenever you play a Merfolk spell, you may tap or untap target permanent. And the most explosive turns where you played Regery was when you had your vial on free or something like that. You vialed it in and then played your first merfolk and untapped your vial. And that's just super nasty things that can come out of that. So I picked a land that's designed for merfolks. It's designed uh, during the Lorwyn Shadowmoor era. And I picked the version free from Shadowmoor by Brandon uh, Kitkuski. You know, it's it's under it's under the water. It looks like the bottom of the ocean, and there are some underwater huts. And a lot of the art in, especially Shadowmoor, is quite dark, and it really feels like they dwell on the bottom of the ocean uh, or the the rivers. It's not safe. It's one of those giant fish that you are always scared of, you know, putting your foot down in the in the lake or river that's gonna like bite your toe off. The merfolk in this era kind of feels like that. They are not the pretty merfolk like the the master of the pearl trident with a fat armor, you know, riding to battle. It's not coral helm commander. It's not master of waves. These merfolk from this era looks very, you know, like up to no good. They are really uh, mischievous and. I think, yeah, they, they really give a sense of darkness that I think when you play against Merfolk as like the deck looked back then and today, it's kind of that feeling. You're still scared of how deep the river that you're, you're being invited to, how deep it actually is. And 
would you dare dip your toe in? You shouldn't. That's my pick. No, you definitely shouldn't. I, I really like the, the flavor angle you went with here, and I'm, I'm so with you. I also really want the sinister merfolk, the sort of don't get down into my fucking lake. I'm going to spare you on my trident, and then I'm going to feed you to my, I don't know what type of pets mer people keep. In, in, in Swedish, we would say gammeljeddan. Which is, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I have no clue what the good translation is. But those really, you know, tall, nasty, big fish that usually lives in really murky swamps and, uh, you know, uh, lakes. I'm actually gonna, I'm, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do as a good one. Yeah, you're gonna n- ninja this one. Pike. A pike. Old pike. Yeah, the old pike. Uh, it's like their their like their old pet dog. The old pike. They feed these beard uh, intruders feet. Those. It's just nasty. So yeah, that's uh, that's my pick. What about you, Victor? Tell me all about your merfolk picks. So since I also want to go for the sinister evil route, I went to Time Spiral. Incidentally, because the Lord of Atlantis was reprinted in Time Spiral, so I thought that would fit. And this is uh, card number 289. It's an island by Richard Wright. And it's a very dark, 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 dark blue imagery of uh, overground. There's some kind of island river system. And there is this magnificent many-forked lightning coming out of the sky. And you can just feel that you're standing looking at this scenery, this dark midnight thunderstorm island. And you are anything but safe and it really spoke to me uh, i don't know really why but this is like mm, yes uh, i i really want to sleeve this up next time i put merfolk and of course next time i play merfolk i as you will have to acquire i think i i think i'm three play sets of merfolk short <laughs> since i played the deck because the development has been so so interesting i saw uh, someone stream merfolk the other day and um, I mean, the deck is is a lot better these days than it used to be. Problem though is that many other decks are also a lot better than they used to be. <laughs> so yeah. it's not a prime option probably, but you know, still. And also, I have to do honorable mention. There is this one island that I have actually have chosen before for high tide. Yeah, I remember this because I want because I wanted to find an island where the mer people on the imagery of high tide come from and this uh, didn't occur they never got their home until you know dominaria was released <laughs> so this is island 256 by dimitar marinsky which features a really super nice underground uh, sort of ruined city it's it looks like angkor vat sank into the ocean which is exactly how i envision uh, more people's cities to look like uh, but since we already had it on this panel we're not going to put it as the official choice i'm going to have the richard wright island from time spiral but if you want to sheet you can also check out dominar 256 by dimitar marinsky yeah I'm, i must say i i really like the setup you did for the time spiral one and i do think that it's a that it's a good pick i'm a really huge uh, horror movie fan uh, like I, I I watch a lot of horror movie and some of the more classical creature features uh, when there's a a merman or some sort of merfolk or you know uh, a a creature from the beyond 
it's usually presented with some sort of lightning striking because you know it's it's usually stormy in these like in these movies like the setup the setting is uh, it's stormy and they uh, ascend from the ocean they're coming up to to greet or eat <laughs> and uh, you know the lightning strikes and you see the silhouettes and then the second time the lightning strike they're gone like the thing that you saw the silhouette is gone and this looks like the lightning is striking and there's all kinds of possible silhouettes in the picture is that a thing is that a person what's there on the right or like there's water in the picture is there something underneath it's just a really you know horror-esque creature feature art style and i really like that pick for the sinister merfolk that you also seem to fancy and hearing you talk about this imagery i i get this i see this thing that i didn't see before because even though this this lightning is many forked the light from it hasn't really reached you where you stand in this image the foreground is still so dark that as you say you can't really be sure what's there you can't discern is that a rock or is that the head of some monstrous merfolk coming to eat me or feed me to his uh, old pike yeah this this uh, this card gets even better uh, the more we talk about it it's a it's a really solid pick from the horror movie lover well that is all we have for this week Many thanks for staying with us to the end of this slightly shorter duo podcast of Stockholm Legacy Report. If you liked it and want to help us out, you can uh, recommend this podcast to a friend of yours. And if someone wants to reach out to us, where can we be found? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at uh, ManlifMTG, where you can see me stress out about school. And you can find me at Disco Drogo. Also on Twitter, where you can see me post pictures of what I do on Saturday nights, which is, of course, one screen, legacy paper stream, another screen, Dungeons and Dragons stream. Um, that's how cool I am. This is the end of the 16th episode of Stockholm Legacy Report. Thank you, Christopher Wikström. Our amazing music is written by Frönes. You should check them out on Spotify. Until next time, don't forget that the seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake.